0: All right. Today we're taking a short break from our series in Hebrews to uh, review a, a passage and a topic that um, we we like to revisit every few years, especially around uh, this time of the year during election season. And in the past, we've taken some uh, Sunday school lessons and 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 stuff like that, and, and try to address this topic. Uh, and that's helped us quite a bit, I think. Um, but to be honest with you, I think our culture quite hasn't, you know, we haven't graduated from this material. And uh, if anything, I think we're more in need of this this teaching uh, today than we did four years ago. So I think this might be a, a much needed review for a lot of us. And for those of you who might be new, new to NCA, I, I hope this, gives you at least an introduction as to where we um, come from when it comes to Christian political engagement. So let's give our year uh, to the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 12 today, uh, looking at verses 13 to 17. And I'll go ahead and read this for us. Mark 12, verse 13 to 17. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, What I want to show you from this passage today is Jesus, how he completely uh, stands apart from the standard political dialogue of his culture and time, which, interestingly, was very much like ours today. Uh, something like a, a binary two-party system, two opposite extremes with, with a few things in between. Uh, and, and Jesus wasn't a moderate in this. He wasn't some kind of a centrist. That's not the point of this passage. Jesus was simply different. He was simply different and what Jesus offered his disciples also uh, was entirely uh, a different approach to politics. Here's what I wanna show you, two big points. First is how to identify ourselves with Christ, and why that's so important. And secondly, how we can therefore engage with others politically, how we identify with Christ, first of all, and as a result of that, engage with other people politically. All right. First, identifying uh, with Christ. Uh, let's start, start off with some context here. We find two groups of people here in verse 13, and they are the Herodians and the Pharisees, okay? And these two were, in a sense, two major political parties of their time and representing two opposite ends of a spectrum. Uh, Pharisees, on the one hand, were opposed to Roman rule, at least in principle, and reluctantly going along with it. Herodians, on the other hand, were part of the group that supported Roman imperial rule. So in a sense, um, the, the Herodians were viewed more as the, the progressive type, and the Pharisees were viewed more as a conservative type. Why? Because, you know, on the one hand, Herodians are saying, let's adapt. Let's adapt to the changes, the socio-political changes, and progress forward with, with the current movement. But the Pharisees on the other hand were more traditionalists, they were more conservative. Uh, they say uh, we gotta go back to our roots, to our founding, to our beginnings, and our laws. So, so these were the two major debates, political debates going on at the time. Two very opposed views. Uh, and they did not get along. <laughs> There were, of course, you know, other third parties like the Zealots and the Sadducees, uh, but the ones featured in this passage are the two, two big ones. The two big ones that were often opposed to one another, two very diverging movements headed in opposite directions. But you know what's interesting, though, is it says here at the end of verse 13 that they wanted to trap Jesus in his talk. Okay? They're not coming to this, into this scene debating one another. They're united against someone, and that is Christ. They're both on the agenda of trapping Jesus in his talk. Why? To put him away. To put him away. They're effectively trying to cancel Jesus here. Um, For some reason, Jesus was a threat to both ends of the political spectrum. Neither side could claim Jesus as their own. And therefore, they're here to sort of force Jesus into some kind of an endorsing statement for their side. And that's the trap. So, after a little bit of um, meaningless flattery, they, they ask this question near the end of verse 14 Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful or is it not? Now, why, how is that trapping Jesus in anything? That's because if Jesus says, Yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar then that would have pleased the Herodians, right? Uh, but made the Pharisees very, very angry. And and also those who resisted Roman rule, um, because it's pagan rule, and they were very heavy on taxation. Um, so it would have really displeased the people um, who were hurt by this, if Jesus were to say, you should pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, and then... Um, there's, there's the other side where if, if he were to say, no, don't pay taxes, then that would have been a nod to those who were planning some kind of rebellion, some kind of revolt against the current, current empire. And in fact, there was during this time, often these violent revolts, violent revolutions being stirred up, these false messiah figures coming up. Um, and if Jesus were to say, don't pay taxes, defy Roman rule, that would seem like a nod to to that end of the spectrum so the the question is you know posed kind of brilliantly in this either or uh, yes or no format and there's absolutely no room for subtlety nuance or complexity they're just trying to fit Jesus into one box or the other well what's Jesus's answer here is it yes or no is it is it More progressive, or is it more conservative, or something in the middle? Here's what he says. Bring me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say it's Caesar's. And then he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay, now, as soon as he says that, notice, first of all, nobody says to this, yes, Jesus, that's what we were going to say. Now we know you're on our side. Nobody claims that. It says in verse 17, actually, that they all marveled at him. They were all amazed at him. Jesus didn't give an answer that identified him either as a Herodian or as a Pharisee, a progressive or a conservative or some moderate centrist. He just didn't identify himself using any of their terms. And they marveled. They were amazed. They were like, what is this guy then? What is this guy? And what's happening here is Jesus is refusing to identify himself entirely with one party or one stream of thought. He's refusing to, even as people are, are pushing him to. So here's at least one application we have to make before we move on any further. If Jesus himself refused to, as he, as he does here, to identify himself with any single political party with with any single political stream of thought then shouldn't we as his followers resist the temptation to identify jesus as such as if one stream of thought can categorize and fully encompass all of christ if if jesus refused to do that to himself why should we do it to him Instead of arguing over whether Jesus is on our side, what, shouldn't we just wonder whether we are properly on, on his side? You know, I'm not a big football fan. Um, I, I only care about football when it comes to Super Bowl season. And only because that's only because I just want to hang out with people and eat junk food. Okay, It's just an excuse to spoil myself a little bit. Um, but imagine if this room was split into two groups where... This side, the people are saying, Oh, Pastor John is a diehard Falcons fan. On this side of the room, there are people who are saying, No, he is a diehard Cowboys fan. And then the argument just starts to heat up over time. Eventually, two groups start hating each other, and the, the two groups decide to split up into two churches over, over the course of time. <laughs> Nothing would be more ridiculous than that, right? Because I myself haven't made such a claim. And for people to make various statements about me and then argue over it and then split up over it, wouldn't that be ridiculous and hate each other over it? And the same should apply to our political identifications. If Jesus himself didn't identify himself with one political stream of thought, we shouldn't claim that he did, and we shouldn't act as though we know that he did. And this means no Christian should be out there saying, Christians must vote for this party or that party. You know, if you were really a Christian, you would vote the way I do. That's just not something Jesus would say, and that's not something Jesus's followers should ever say. You can say that I am voting this way, I am behaving this way based on my personal Christian convictions. You can, and you should say that, I think. But you also have to acknowledge that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who can think differently and behave differently than you. And even when we do engage in in debates about biblical principles, application of those principles, and, and I think, you know, debate is a It's becoming a lost art, but I think it's worth pursuing still. Even then, we should never contribute to the demonization of other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not how you go about engaging in in politics, saying, here's the party of light, and there's the party of darkness. That's not the way you should identify yourself or identify others. It's not the way Jesus did it. We need to be wiser than that and see through the, the schemes in, 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 the, in the, the sects and the, the parties in the world that employ this as a tool to divide people. You know, there's a certain way that digital communications especially uh, flattens people today, uh, limiting people to, to being defined and categorized and, and seen only through that one one controversial, article they post or that one political meme they share that triggers all sorts of emotions but you know that's because it people share those things content creators create those things because it drives internet traffic real people in the real world are much more complex multi-dimensional than the flattened caricatures that you encounter on social media they have They have convictions, they have passions, they have cultural underpinnings, they have personalities and histories and upbringings and anecdotes and theologies, none of which can be fully accessed through digital means. Studies have actually shown that through tests that uh, people who communicate more by digital means than in real life, real face-to-face interactions actually make all kinds of errors in interpreting human emotions. They've done this test showing that uh, those who took took, a significantly more amount of time communicating digitally when they were tested, they misinterpreted this depression as fear or an invitation as a hostile attack. All kinds of misinterpretations of people's emotions when you are, when all you're doing is communicating via likes and shares and emojis. Because it's not real, that's not real human interaction. And they found, researchers have found, if you want to sharpen your social skills and and increase your emotional intelligence, you have to spend less time sending emojis and talk more face to face with people. And as Christians, we have all the more reason to be, to be on the front lines of this and reversing this trend of flattening the image bearers of God, demonizing image bearers of God. Like Jesus says, consider whose image is on the denarius, and they say it's Caesar, so that belongs to Caesar. The point there is whose image is on you, whose image is on people, God's, then then let's treat them as such as image bearers of God and honor God by by treating everyone respectfully and that's also what Jesus meant by render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and and also it also means in the end because it all belongs to God we should render all things back to him in the end he sits on the throne in the end His kingdom will rule. We know Jesus said his his kingdom is not of this world, right? That's why he didn't come to run for an earthly office. He came to take a heavenly throne. And so as people of God, we have to realize that we're primarily called to gather around the throne of God and worship him there and find our identity there. That's rendering to God what is God's giving God our ultimate allegiance and pouring out our our deepest desires, resting our greatest hope at the feet of our King, King Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's your identity, and that's my identity. That's our hope, that Christ will bring heaven down to earth and transform us and free us from all our struggles and our toils. If somehow an earthly government, if somehow one political election could have achieved this, Jesus would not have come down from heaven. Jesus would not have given us citizenship to heaven if citizenship here could have somehow achieved this for us. And the whole point of the gospel is, because we cannot create this kingdom here on earth, we're, for one, we're not phased, therefore, when we see a broken government, even a corrupt government. We're not phased, but we yearn all the more for the coming kingdom of God that King Jesus would bring. No election will either fulfill the kingdom of God or usher in the the apocalypse or the end times. I think some people think that. I think they're mistaken to think that. Whatever happens in this election, the the end times hinges on... uh, I think we do our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea, for example, a real disservice when we imply... That based on what is happening in the USA, we can tell whether living, we're living in the end times or not. They've been living in the last days. They've been living in the end times. And the kingdom of God is not going to be fulfilled in the, in the U.S. or in North Korea or even in Israel. Jesus said the kingdom of God is not a place that people can find on earth, locate on earth and say, look, there it is, or here it is. Instead, we're told through John's vision in Revelation 21 that the new Jerusalem is one that comes down out of heaven. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This holy city, this new kingdom, is not one that we create on earth preparing it for god to come and descend upon it's something god brings down out from heaven meaning it's not here it's not found on earth it's nowhere to be found on earth and our primary calling is to worship god for ushering in this kingdom for us and inviting us giving us citizenship to that kingdom the kingdom of heaven and we're here to rehearse that celebration as we gather as the body of Christ and worship. Here's where we regain our eternal identity. Here's where we rediscover that our hope is not here. It's above, with Christ. And when we realize this, what will happen is not only will we not disengage from, from the world, from our city, and from, from political affairs, we'll actually engage in it more effectively with more kindness and with more humility and that's the second point engaging with others once you realize your identity and your destiny is not here that the perfect government is not going to be established here on earth then you can actually engage with earthly governments and engage politically with one another in a reasonable way in, in, in a humble manner and with kindness And in short, it's by rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and nothing more. It's by rendering to politics the things that are due politics and not the things that are due unto God. Your identity, your future hope, your security, your peace and your joy. Render those things to God. Then you'll be able to render to Caesar, render to politics the things that belong there. What happens when you you render to Caesar, when you render to government, when you render to to politics the things that belong to God? You you treat it then as your object of worship. You give it your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, The candidate becomes your high priest. Your vote becomes your offering. Your arguments become your evangelism. The conventions become your temple when politics become an idol like this, you, you, you become consumed by it and you become its worshiper. And like all idols, it will not satisfy you, it will only make you more miserable. Uh, Jonas Kaplan, he's a professor of psychology at USC, and here's something he's found. Uh, he says, when we think that our political beliefs are matters perna- pertaining to our core identity, okay, when you confuse politics with your core identity, what's gonna happen is, uh, you will treat everything around you from that reference point. And he says, quote, the brain will begin to consider uh, that, that part of yourself, that political part of yourself, to be an integral part of yourself, and then it will protect it in the same way, meaning you will protect your political beliefs, your political allegiances the same way you will protect your body from physical harm. Meaning what? When someone disagrees with you politically, you would treat that as a physical attack upon you. You will feel personally, physically attacked because your brain is telling you, you need to survive. This is your core identity. You need to protect this at all costs. This is how you will begin to react to those who simply disagree with you politically, when you treat this as your core identity. And what would that lead to? Not a whole lot of healthy and fruitful conversations with people you disagree with. You, you begin to run from them. You demonize them. You become neurotic and you become reactive. Rather than entering into meaningful learning, understanding dialogues with them. And nothing is more counterproductive to Christian evangelism than that to run from the darkness, to simply demonize the darkness and run from it and hide. When the whole point of being the light is you enter into the darkness and you shine in it. Not to point a finger at darkness, not to yell at the darkness from a distance. If you're the light, you enter into the darkness. And then I want to say to you know, if Christians who identify this in the world and say you know, that, that stuff is so wrong, so off, so derailed, so anti-gospel, so anti-Christian. And my, my message to those people would be, and if this is you, my message to you would be, great, you found one. Go reach them. Invite them over for dinner. Be the light in that darkness and stop running from them. Nothing is more counterproductive to our mission, to seeking and saving the lost, than practicing this This worldly practice of simply demonizing others and isolating others. And this, again, happens if you render to Caesar the things that are God's. You know, when you consider Jesus and the way he called his disciples, uh, you'll find a very good example of how he undoes this, how he just turns this upside down. He how he transfers the, their core identity, essentially, from their politics to the kingdom of God. And, uh, the best example of this is Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, two of the twelve disciples. Matthew the tax collector was employed employed by the Roman government. Simon the zealot belonged to the, the radical group called zealots, called sicarios, who Who are called that because they originate from this group of people who carried around daggers to assassinate Roman officials. Jesus caused them both not only to be Christians, but to be apostles. Apostles. And without presenting them any political preconditions, you know, joining or leaving a political party was not a prerequisite. To following jesus and what's interesting is these disciples kept this title matthew the tax collector simon the zealot yet they could somehow live together befriend one another and be close companions every day for three years why because they followed jesus and jesus was their core identity If we follow Jesus, if you truly follow Jesus, and Jesus is your true identity, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a citizen in the kingdom of God. If that's who you truly are deepest, deep down in, in your heart, you can be a tax collector who lives with a zealot. You can be a zealot who lives with a tax collector. You can be a Democrat who lives with a Republican. You can be a Republican who's married to a Democrat. You can be a... a a Justice Scalia and a Justice Ginsburg, two people with polar opposite political philosophies at the same time, the best of friends. And how is that possible? They didn't define themselves or each other by their politics. I love this story of, of, of uh, the late Justice Scalia. He preparing for Justice Ginsburg on her birthday, a bouquet of roses, And his friend saw it and and said, hey, you you do this every year for her. You give her roses every year on her birthday. But what have these roses done to benefit you in any way in the courtroom? Have, have, Have these roses ever swung her vote to your favor, ever? And Justice Scalia said, you know, some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than votes the only way you'll be able to engage with others be hospitable towards others be a light in any form of darkness you see is if you ground your identity in something other than politics something other than caesar something not earthly but grounding your identity in christ realizing something really is more important than the way we vote There is an identity that is more core to who I am than than how I vote in this election. And that will free us. That will free us to actually engage with one another in our differences. It will actually enable us to be generous in our hearing and our listening to one another rather than listening to what others or articles say about our neighbors but going to our neighbors, going to those people, and listening to them. It's okay to disagree. It's normal to disagree. But let's not disagree at the expense of forfeiting the call to love our neighbors, forfeiting the call to go seek and save the lost. Let's not compromise our mission as we hide under the basket, like Jesus said. Let's not render to Caesar the things that are God's. Now, at the same time, what Jesus is also affirming is you should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. You should pay your taxes to him. You should submit to government authorities. You should participate in your civic duties, in other words. And that's okay. That's good. You can even run for office and be identified with a political party. That's fine. You know, some, I think some people, some Christians are a bit too disengaged from, from politics. Uh, too indifferent from um, just about what's going on around us, and and that's not a good thing either. You should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And maybe, maybe it's because you're afraid. If, you know, the soon, the, as soon as you start engaging, you just get eaten up by the by the intensity, um, the the climate that's out there right now politically. But you don't have to fear that when you know that's not. That's not where your core identity is. It's okay to study the issues for yourself and align yourself with, with a certain party to support a certain candidate. That's fine. But keep these words in mind from Scott Saul's. If we do align with a political party, we must hold our loyalty to that party loosely, loosely in comparison to the way we hold on to the kingdom of Jesus, or rather to the way Jesus' kingdom holds on to us. It's okay to affiliate yourself with a party, support a party candidate, campaign for a party candidate. I did that back in college. It was kind of fun. But hold that identity loosely. Especially in comparison to the way you hold on to your kingdom identity and the way you hold on to King Jesus. So when we remember that our identity is in Christ, in the perfect kingdom of God, we don't swear allegiance to any earthly political parties and then and then we'll be open to working with others in our community Christian or not to find as much common ground as possible to to magnify God's common grace as much as possible rather than magnifying the uncommon grounds uncommon things we'll be open to seeing the best in others rather than the worst and we'll be secure enough in our identity to critique not only others on the other side, but people who are on our own side. Critique our own party affiliations, our own party candidates, to see the plank in our own party's eye before we try to remove the speck in the other parties. This is how Christians can engage in politics, unlike anyone in the world. Unlike anyone in this cultural moment, Christians can be utterly unique in the way They engage with politics. Christians don't have to agree on everything. Christians can disagree and learn from one another, grow with one another, change our minds on things now and then, as long as we are rooted in Christ, as long as we are confessing Him as Lord, as long as we understand our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We can disagree. We can have a healthy debate, but we should never say to the other, you know, if you were really a Christian, you would vote the way I do. No, if you were really a Christian, you would grow and become more and more like Jesus. So you say, I, I love you and respect you. I consider you to be a brother and sister in Christ, but here's why I respectfully disagree with you. And whatever happens, you don't let that disagreement compromise your witness to the world. You rather show the world the love of Christ that binds you together. And, and as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, we function as a whole body. So we can't be the eye that says to the hand, I don't, I don't need you. Instead, we can humbly acknowledge that there are some needs in this world that you are uniquely gifted to see and meet and other needs that your other brothers and sisters in Christ are uniquely gifted to see and meet. That's the wisdom of God. We're united by the gospel, the universal body of Christ, the church Catholic, the church universal, and yet we're so diverse in the way we live this out in the world, so different in the way we exercise our gifts. There are also many things that we should and we can, as a church, unite around. And and there are issues like that in the Bible that the Bible is absolutely clear on that we should unite around. For example, the Bible says we should care for immigrants because we were all, at one point, immigrants. We should agree on that, that as Christians, we should be concerned and we should care for immigrants. But what's the best number of immigrants we should admit to the country every year? That's up to debate. That's a policy debate. So you can d- disagree about the, the methodology and the practice, but you've got to agree in principle as Christians we've got to care for the immigrants. The Bible is also absolutely clear that God cares about life in the womb. He cares deeply for the unborn. Science is clear on that. That's, that's a human being in there. But there are two parallel paths to, to healing this problem in our country. There's... there's One way that's legislative and legal, okay, where you outlaw the procedure that takes away the life of an innocent human being. But there's another way that is cultural and societal, and that is creating an environment, an environment where such procedures are not so sought after, not so necessary, where women feel protected enough and supported enough, which, by the way, is another biblical priority that God cares intensely for the widow, the single mother, So some may focus their efforts more on the legal pathway, others may focus more on the cultural reform path. And that has to be a both-and. It has to be this holistic approach. You pursue both. And you know, here's the thing, as you pursue both, here's what will happen. To liberals, you appear too conservative. To conservatives, you appear too liberal. And they will marvel at you and say, what is this person? the same way they marveled at Jesus. What are you? You're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. That's what you are. You are a light in the darkness. And you will shine that light wherever, wherever there is darkness. And even as we do that, even even if we do identify something as dark, something as sinful, here's something else we have to remember. The Bible teaches us that there's no sin that's so small that the Bible doesn't subject to punishment and damnation. At the same time, the Bible teaches us no sin is so great that God will not forgive and pardon upon repentance. And that means what? We can never feel morally superior to others by comparing our sins and theirs. We should therefore always, even in identifying sin, employ language of humility, gentleness for the sake of restoring the sinner and not casting them out. We're forgiven by grace. We're saved by grace while we were yet sinners. And in your communication and your reaching out, in your evangelism especially, this grace and this kindness has to be felt. This has to be felt. So let me close with this, with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, where it says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. You can have a good debate. You can engage in in political discussions. You can invite others to change their minds. That's fine, but make sure you do it with divine kindness with divine gentleness, and of course, with the knowledge of God's truth. And as we do this, we secure, even for ourselves, again and again, our identity, not here on earth, but in Christ, above, in the heavens. And that will put us on the right trajectory. We, we gather as a community that worship God, celebrate the gospel together, and with good conscience, in, in our personal ways, we pursue loving God and loving our neighbors out there in the world. And let iron sharpen iron. Okay. And that means clashing now and then. Right? Iron doesn't coddle the other iron. That doesn't lead to sharpening. Uh, it's okay you bump into one another now and then. I, let iron sharpen iron. But your identity is already fortified your identity is already secure in Christ and his kingdom so let's continue to seek him his righteousness as his kingdom as the body of Christ let's pray our heavenly father we we ask that you would give us wisdom as we move forward during this season to to engage with one another to engage with our world to be responsible citizens here on earth and as we do so, God, we pray that we would uh, manifestly show love for our neighbors. Show how you um, had interacted with your neighbors, how you had have eaten, have fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, how you have been a light in the darkness, how you have always invited in and not cast out. Help us to imitate our Lord our Savior, our King, even now. We do ask that through that, Lord, you would heal our nation by by restoring your disciples in the church that you would heal the nation. May we be uh, your image bearers uh, in the world. Help us to be like Christ in the world. And through us, Lord, uh, make your coming kingdom more pronounced, more announced, and more more visible here, even now, uh, as, we, as we live out your mission. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.